Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talk Junkies, where today's going to be a very interesting day, as it is each and every single week here at Talk Junkies. We've got Johnny Jesse in the house. How are you guys doing? Doing well. Good. Good. Well, um, if you're interested in last week's podcast, it was taken off of YouTube, um, but you still can <laughs> you still can find it. You can find it on uh, Spotify, iTunes, and I think there's a few other places where you can find it. Um, I'll put links in the description below on where you can find the vi- last week's video. Do you have it on BitChute? Uh, BitChute just changed their uh, upload uh, size limit so that you can only upload two, uh, ge- two, okay. g- two gigabyte bit- videos. Uh, whenever we do videos, they're right around 10 gigs, so... Um, you just got to compress it differently or whatever. Yeah, that's yeah. techno mumbo but, jumbo. But anywho, it was Dr. Joel Hirschhorn. We've had him on before. I'll put links in the description below on where you can find that. Very interesting stuff. Um, very similar to the Dr. Peter McCullough podcast that Joe Rogan did. But uh, any anywho, today is going to be a very fantastic day. We have a, a new gentleman coming on today. He's very uh, well-rounded in the world that we live in, or at least myself, in the conspiracy world. Because um, I'm pretty out there. You guys know I wear the tinfoil hat and all that good stuff. Um, he's an author. Uh, he's been on multiple media platforms and interviews. He's uh, the head of an organization as well. Uh, Andy Thomas, how you doing, sir? It's good to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Hey, anytime, man. Um, I, I, I didn't do you justice on the, everything that you're involved in. So if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey, man. Sure. I mean, I started in that kind of disreputable realm of paranormal investigation. That was 30 years ago. Uh, UFOs, crop circles, all that kind of thing. And I'm still open minded towards that now. But of course, when you start down that path, you very quickly realize that nobody in the mainstream is telling the truth. Whatever anybody's opinion, you can put that aside, but they don't tell the truth about these things. And I realized very quickly, well, if they're misrepresenting something as, well, reasonably straightforward as that, you know, what else are they misrepresenting? So uh, as the years went by, I got into investigating, you know, the deeper, darker stuff that we name conspiracy. uh, And I really have a very strong passion for freedom of expression which, you know, is, you could argue doesn't even exist now. Uh, but I feel very strongly about that. I think the injustices over the years of the way anything that is not in this very narrow band, which, uh, you know, the mainstream has declared, then it's dismissed or it's, you know, people are deliberately taken away from that information. So that is wrong. So I've been writing books over the years. I've been uh, giving lectures over the years, trying to raise awareness. Um the book that I just produced, uh, The New Heretics, and I think the name says it all, is really the apogee of all that. And now in these times, more than any, we've got to have a discussion about the discussion, because if we don't, uh, we're all in trouble. Very much so. So guide us a little bit into your book. Um, I, I, it's it's a you know it's a good sized book. So where do you want to kind of start today in today's podcast? What's a, a, sure. a good starting point for people whenever they buy this new book? I mean, so I I have a group of friends that I've been working with for years, and we have a little email group. And you know, for years we've been batting stuff back and forward. Um, when COVID came up, it's interesting. People divided quite quickly into, "Is this real?" And some said, "Yes, it must be." And others said, "I don't believe this is real." And then there were others in the middle ground who thought that it was real, but it was being used to create fear and control us. And I came out of that, you know, a year or so of that in the big lockdown with a real insight into the fact that actually getting to the absolute truth of something is really hard. Uh, and, uh, you know, even the scientists can't agree. So us throwing all this kind of stuff between us, we're pretty unlikely to come to an absolute truth. And I realized from it that what we all do is choose our truths based on probabilities. And we might be right. We might be wrong. But that to actually acknowledge that is quite a useful thing. And then when, you know, of course, the the capital invasion occurred uh, earlier this year, that was a big moment, too, because anybody that is perceived as being a conspiracy theorist, whereas before they were seen as a harmless eccentric, suddenly they were now all dangerous insurrectionists. And I saw over here, and we're talking here in, in the UK, 
a distinct change in the attitude towards anybody that questioned orthodoxy. And suddenly you were seen as a very bad person if you did, and you, you must be stopped from talking immediately. Uh, and the slide's gone from there. And, and since the vaccine arguments, we're not going to get into the detail of that today. Uh, people have divided up and got so polarised. And it really occurred to me that, you know, that's just one expression of polarization that's been building for a long time, whether it be left versus right, you know, Democrats versus Republicans. Over here, we've had the whole Brexit thing, those that wanted to stay in the European Union, others that wanted to leave. We did leave in the end, but it's divided people. And what I'm fascinated by is to see, can we get over that polarization? Can we find another way of accepting somebody isn't going to agree with us where we don't want to kill them? And we actually can actually get to the nub of what this is about. So the new heretics really grew from this, and it takes a number of hot topics from EMF radiation, 5G, COVID, but climate, you know, so many things. The capital invasion, 9-11, which is still an issue today, and tries to actually get further than the usual arguments, just go like that, and everybody stops because they're just bouncing off of each other, trying to open a door to see if we can find a better way to truth. So that's really what the book's trying to do, but also inform people on the outside, look, here are why these arguments exist. These aren't just stupid people. They're, these are real people with real passion, and they care, and yet we're being told they're all terrible people. And I do want to change that. Whatever you agree with or don't, it doesn't matter whether you think they're right or wrong. We should hear people out. Now, that world seems to have gone at the moment. I think, man, that's the, what you said right there at the very end is the best representation of it, where it's like, whether you agree with them or not, you should hear them out. That's just, I talk about that a lot on the podcast. That's just communication in general. Like there's so many, it's like, Everybody is talking to brick walls all the time now, and nobody is willing to, if someone doesn't agree with your opinion, it's like you just completely shut them down, and you're like, nope, I don't need to hear it, I'm in the right, I've done my research, screw everything that you're talking about, and it's, it's honestly harmful to the person who's blocking them out, because now you're not getting any new info, that's how you learn things, is by having conversation, confrontation, arguments, all this different stuff, is how you learn new stuff, new information, like knowledge and everything. And the fact that people are just shutting that down and being like, nope, you're an idiot. I don't need to hear anymore. To me is, I don't know. It's ridiculous. Living as much in their as, own echo chamber. Yeah, because like, there's a lot of stuff that like, man, Paul and I disagree on some stuff. We've had conversations out on the back deck where I think Paul's absolutely nuts, crazy psycho, and I don't agree with him, but I will listen to every point that he makes and process that information instead of just being like, nope. So where does that yeah. all where does that all begin from? <clears throat> where does that stem from? How did we get into this place in the first place? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean the book explores that. I, I mean I think you just if you look at society in general, you just look at what we entertain ourselves with. So just take a really basic TV program like The X Factor, which I think you have over there. Although it's just stopped over here where you see a talent competition. And then you look at the way the audience is manipulated. Everybody is built up to a kind of a frenzy from the start. And then there's nowhere to go. If you start at that level up there, what do you do? You, you wind up going mad. Every advert, everything in the mainstream is designed to evoke a reaction from us. Uh, everything, the boundaries of everything are blurred. So we're trained to react and it makes money. You know, we then click on the clickbait or we see an opinion that it sounds very shocking and we can't help ourselves. We want to know what that is. Everything does it. We're manipulated into reacting. And of course, the advent of social media, which, which I do not think is an evil, by the way, it can be used, as we know, for bad purposes. But we need to get away from that thing of it being inherently bad, which we're now being fed. It, it's a tool. And like any tool, you can kill with it or you can do something constructive with it, you know? So... What's happened is all of this is built up, but now, because everybody's got to that stage where they just react, they don't think, they don't listen to what somebody else is saying, 
Uh, that's that's all you're getting. So somebody flames off on social media, reposts something without ever stopping, even literally for five minutes to wonder if it's true or, well, maybe let's just see if there's a more nuanced way of dealing with this. So that's the world we're in. But it, it's not anything you can just pin on conspiracy theorists. Everybody does it. The whole world's been trained to be like that. And it's funny, now they don't like it when we're seeing the outcome of that. Uh, because when extreme things happen, like COVID, just as one example, it's weird because we're now expected suddenly to trust the very authorities in a time of crisis that it's clear have been manipulating us for so long. And that's not a conspiracy theory. It's just obvious. So the book spends a bit of time looking at the background to this, looking at how boundaries are blurred all the time. And you, you're always left not really knowing what's true or not. But we, we are manipulated by them doing that. And we're trying to react. So it's about, right, OK, let's accept this. Let's understand how and why that's happened. Now let's move beyond it. And you made a very good point a few moments ago which is that we're in a world now where if you express an opinion to somebody which they don't agree with, they don't just say, well, I think you're wrong. They actually brand you the enemy. You become the opposition from the start, right? Even within a simple conversation. Or if you post something online that somebody doesn't like, uh, that they think is a little bit too nuanced or a little bit too balanced, suddenly you are a new world order shill and all this. And you think, how does that help anybody? A nuance is a word that we've all forgotten. If anybody doesn't know what it means, do look it up. Right? We need nuance back where everything is not black and white. Right? It's If you look at the reality of the universe around us, everything's a bit fuzzy in the middle. We don't need anybody doing that all the more deliberately. But we can begin to understand that the best you can do is come out with probabilities for what you believe and acknowledge your own tendencies as to why you will believe something. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to go there and examine themselves to see why it is actually they do have a belief. And if you look back at your own background, you, you'll find, you know, we all, we, we come up through various channels where you're either more likely to trust or distrust. But if you can accept that and realize where you're making your decisions from, and then actually look for real evidence, not just the hearsay, you can begin to adjust the way you respond to it and the way you pass it on. And that's the key. And if we can get back to a more nuanced way of doing that, it doesn't have to be this big polarization that we now have as a matter of routine. And I think the sooner we can break out of that, the better. So that includes the government and, and, and higher ups and people who are in charge to, to go along with that as well. Because in this, in, this, in this new age of information, and, and I think now more so than ever, you see that people are able to find information or evidence um, that fits their narrative. And it goes for both sides. You can find evidence each way you look at it. Um, so maybe finding that nuance in the people who are in power, which I, I've thought that the people had the power, but um, I think it starts with them and getting the true factual evidence or close as, close as you can get to it, right? Well, if you look at, say, the study of psychic phenomena, just to kind of go sideways, you see that polarization again there, where anybody in mainstream science who dares start to investigate, even if they are the most qualified people in the world, just by even daring to look at it, to consider that it might be real, that's usually the end of their career. Or they get branded maverick and they're pushed out to the, the fringes where they lose their funding, they don't get the peer respect anymore. And, and you think, well, hang on a minute, that's not even a scientific approach. That is an absolute judgment where you have very closed minds in quite influential positions, especially the scientists that influence the media. Astronomers will be a good example of that, where they are so savage in attacking anything, whether it be a belief in UFOs or astrology or whatever, when they clearly have never studied it. And you don't, I'm not saying you have to believe in these things, but they clearly have never studied them. They don't know what they're talking about because some of the criticisms they make, you realize are very uninformed, but they carry the power. And that's who people hear. And it's almost like they drive that agenda over and over. So anybody that actually says, can we actually just look at the evidence just, just briefly, they, they are not heard out. So because the people at the top, you know, they've got careers to look after, they have to destroy them. 
They have to destroy any voice that might topple them. And that's where we're at. And that's exactly what's happening with every other subject. And I just gave that as one good example, that there is a mindset an orthodoxy and you are meant to go with an orthodoxy and once upon a time it was kind of quite fashionable to question a little bit now it's seen as dangerous uh, and that's what they've cleverly done so that people like ourselves having these conversations here there are people out there who are being trained to believe that we are literally evil people and that we actually want a worse world and that we are the ones working for, you know, this destructive cause. When, of course, anybody within it knows that's not where it comes from. You might think that we're wrong, but there's a passion. There's a real care. Most people questioning the vaccine or COVID, even if you think they're stupid, are not doing that to be troublemakers, which I've actually heard said on, you know, TV programmes. They're not. They have beliefs which they really care about and they worry that the world's going in the wrong direction and just for somebody to acknowledge that might at least give a glimpse of understanding as to why there's such a movement but this constant crushing it down and just dismissing all of these people as basically disruptors of society is not a solution and if it was a solution there wouldn't be anybody that believed that anymore and of course it's going the other way isn't it because the more you crush something down the more it will then come out in a more extreme way so that in a way they are guaranteeing exactly what they say they don't want and either that's just stupidity on their part or it is classic divide and rule as some theorists believe that that's the point it's to bring us to a place of complete crisis where everything collapses um i don't know which way around it is but i can see it happening uh, and i don't like it it's I think that's the biggest that's the biggest issue is the 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 shutdown effect, the cancellation effect. You're basically talking about back in the day we used to be able to have conversations amongst each other and people would disagree and there was I talked earlier about people being brick walls. That was always a thing. There were always people who were just never going to believe what you said and were never open-minded. But now, like you said earlier about them being in opposition to you, it's like if you're not with the mainstream narrative, you're actively not only are you not being listened to, you're actively being canceled, like you're being attacked, losing your job, losing your your ability to apply for other jobs, losing your income, all this different stuff, your credibility, if you're a scientist, whatever it may be. And I think that that's the biggest inherent problem is the the shutdown effect of, hey, we disagree about this thing. And now because we disagree about this thing, I'm not going to we're not just going to part ways and separate. I'm going to treat you like Hitler, like you are actively trying to do something incredibly evil in the world. So we need to get you canceled. We need to get you shut down. Nobody should hear your voice and nobody should hear your opinions. I'm going to go out of my way to ruin your livelihood, your career and everything that you, your credibility, everything you've done. When it's something that's as simple as people discussing stuff like abortion or gun rights or, or uh, all these different just stuff that is not actively trying to harm other people. You know what I mean? Like we're not, we're not Hitler. We're not out here actively trying to get rid of different races or people of sexual orientations or all this different stuff. It's nothing harming humanity. It's simple, just conversation and discussion. And people are like, no, not only can you not have this discussion, but you're not even allowed to talk about it. And we're going to get you actively removed from the community. And that's, that's a problem. That's, that's worse than censorship. That's not just censoring someone that is taking them out of the equation, which is, not good. And haven't we been down this path before throughout history? I think we have, but I think because information flows so easily now, it's brought it to a peak. I mean, there's a whole chapter about like cancel culture, woke. And again, try not to get polarized because it's so easy to shake the fist at that. And then you find you're actually just creating more polarization. Again, it tries to understand where that comes from and why people would feel they must cancel somebody instead of dealing with what they're being told, which they might not agree with. But, you know, yes, you're absolutely right. The instinct now is to instantly shut down that view that might harm you or might make you actually question what you believe. Uh, and that isn't helpful to anyone. But that comes, again, from a societal background where I think people have lost their kind of powers of 
deciding what the boundaries are. And as more and more boundaries have been removed, you get people coming through, generations coming through that are very vulnerable. And it's actually an issue. Uh, and we should actually feel sorry for people so that therefore if something challenges their paradigm if you want to call it that they can't deal with it so the instant quickest thing to do is to stop that voice being heard and that's where we are now at uh, but that is not a solution in the long run and I know some people in the kind of cancel culture world think it will be and that once they've cancelled all the bad people in the world everyone will be happy but it just doesn't work and we can see that happening, that what you wind up with is people afraid to speak, right? That's not the same as them having agreed with the cancel culture people, but they're afraid to speak out because they don't want to get trolled to death online. They don't want to get attacked. So they stay quiet. So you've got a lot of people becoming very quiet, which doesn't mean they've gone away. Same with conspiracy thinking, right? Just because the media has managed to remove it from the visibility of the average person doesn't mean it's stopped. And what I find almost funny is that they think it has, but it just, that isn't the case at all. And we see it bubbling up everywhere. I mean, we've had here in uh, England, right? March after massive march in London, especially, and other cities, about people worried about lockdown and the vaccines, vaccine passports. And again, even if you think they're wrong, these marches happened. And there were hundreds of thousands of people on them. And guess what? Most of them were never reported. You put the mainstream news on and they're reporting silly things about TV programs and that. And not a mention that 100,000 people walked through London saying we need to be heard. And that's the shocking thing. It is now possible to hide that from people. And unless you're already of that mind and you, your avenues are open to those people and what they've got to say, you might never know they exist. And that's what the authorities are banking on. But it doesn't in the end work because I think all those masses of people that keep taking to the streets are going to have to find a voice another way. And now already there are movements. There's talk of people setting up their own police forces and what's going to become of that where they will patrol the streets you know, nothing to do with the authorities. And I don't think the authorities are seeing this coming, but, it, but it's like they're so blinkered. They honestly think that if you just keep silencing people enough, it all goes away. Well, it doesn't. And same with council culture, it doesn't. All it does is it makes people go quiet, but it makes it more brooding. It makes it more dangerous. And then you get real racism. You get real homophobia because there's an anger that they are not being heard. Whereas maybe it started with a kind of something could have been dealt with sensibly, you know, had it all been put on the table and just said, OK, well, let's hear what you've got to say. But if you tell someone they can't express something, it's going to explode sooner or later. That's the problem. And we do need to address that. When do you think that this has started in, in, you know, at least in American culture, even over there in the UK, when did you kind of see this start to develop? Because uh, I'm kind of curious, there was, I feel like a golden age in YouTube where everyone was allowed to say whatever it is that they want. Um, there were no aggressive algorithms that would censor people. When did this all begin and, and kind of why did that happen? I think it's been especially the last 10 years. But to be fair, you can go back earlier than that. I mean, even in the 1980s here in England, I can only speak for England on this. Um, there was a lot of concern about political correctness, which we probably now call cancel culture, where people were beginning to feel they couldn't say certain things or you couldn't put a Christmas tree up in a Muslim area or whatever. And it got noticed. It was like, whoa, hang on a minute. Well, why can't we do that? Uh, and, and that sort of has built. But again, I think really you do have to say social media has kind of accelerated it and expanded it. And I know it's been around for a while, but I do think it's the last 10 years when suddenly everybody, including younger people, are now using it as a matter of routine. And I do want to stress again, that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. And that doesn't mean we're begging for it to be censored, but it would be nice to feel that there was a new way of approaching it, a protocol where people could just accept that they're not going to agree with everything they hear and that they have to go into a mindset where they can at least begin to understand why somebody might disagree. In the book, there's a chapter called uh, A Quantum Approach. So we're being a little bit crude here about this, but quantum as in... It, nothing is black, white, yes, no, one or a zero. 
right? Quantum, it can be all manner of states unformed, and then suddenly it goes in one direction when you least expect it. So I kind of use that as a metaphor, which is that before we decide what we believe about this conspiracy theory or that big event which has just happened, it's always worth just stopping. And it's not an easy thing to do, by the way. And putting your mindset in the opposite view to what you immediately think. And it's a really interesting test, right? So you think, I'm just going to imagine for a minute what it would feel like to believe the opposite to what I'm feeling at the moment. And it's really interesting because the brain doesn't have stop you doing it. There's a bit of you goes, no, no, you mustn't do that because I must be right because I'm me. And of course I'm right. But it's funny, if you can do it and just think, yeah, I'm just going to put that aside and imagine what it feels like for the person put in the opposite point of view. It doesn't mean you're going to wind up agreeing with them. But if you sort of vacillate between different states and different views, just even for a few hours, right? it's interesting. You come back from it, maybe still feeling the same as you did, but with a greater understanding of, okay, actually, that's what it feels like. Uh, maybe I shouldn't try and destroy that person over there. I think they're wrong, but maybe, okay, I'm beginning to get it now. But we never think to do that. And I really advise doing that. It's a really hard thing to do. Next time you hear something and you get a gut instinct and you start to rage, just stop for a minute and think, I wonder what it's like to, to be on the opposite side of this viewpoint. And we never are encouraged to do that, are we? Uh, because as we've mentioned, society, it thrives on division and polarization, but we've got to break that. Uh, and it's a, it's a really interesting thing to try. And I recommend it. Uh, and it, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have an opinion. I'm not advocating some kind of wishy-washy middle ground. You'll usually come back to pretty much what your gut was in the first place, but at least you will have come to that place in a nuanced way. And the book talks a lot about how we can do that. It's not that hard. You know, I mean, yes, I'm saying it's hard, but it's not impossible. And the more people that do that, the more understanding there will be. And that's what we lack. And the subtitle of the book, it's called Understanding the Conspiracy Theories Polarizing the World. And it's about much more than that. It's not just about conspiracy theories. It, it looks at the whole future of the freedom of expression and where technology is going to take us. When, you know, everything's governed by central sources, we'd better make damn sure that those central sources do actually represent all of us. Uh, because at the moment, we're seeing that that's not the case. So it, it, it's coming from a point of view of accepting there are going to be differences, but trying to put forward ways we can bridge the gap. And that doesn't mean you have to agree with anybody else if you don't want to, but it, it, it's a way of dealing better with it and coming out of it feeling more empowered and not weakened by all the anger that just eats you up and destroys you. So, you know, this is something I think really worth a go. Go ahead. I was just, I mean, I agree 100%. I've mentioned stuff like that on the podcast before, and you put it best in terms of understanding where it's, I think that's the big thing is people don't understand that by, by doing that, by looking at the other person's opinion, by walking in their shoes, as you would say, you know, taking life and looking at it from their view, you can actually, by understanding more about the entire situation, it can actually turn out to a net positive on your side as well, because you can end up strengthening your own argument by learning more about theirs. I've always said that like when people have an opinion about, and you guys have heard me mention it, when people have an opinion about something or you have an opinion about something, if you can't argue against your own opinion, if you can't take the other side of it and try to have an argument against yourself or learn about them, then your opinion is probably not as valid or you haven't learned enough about your own opinion to really set it in stone and be confident in what you're saying. You should look at both sides of everything to even know so that you're educated on what you're talking about or what you believe yeah. in. And that's just, you put think, it in a yeah. really like eloquent, eloquent way of basically saying that. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and it does also mean like, for instance, I mean, a lot of the arguing about COVID, you, you see a lot of this where people just select a data set so there's a lot of arguments about data, how many cases there really are, how many bad vaccine cases there are that aren't being reported, but people are very selective about the data they use, which appears to then prove their point. You've got to be willing to go beyond that and put all the data on the table, however difficult that is and complex it is. And, and I'm not just saying this is true for people like us. The mainstream's just as bad. 
everybody does this they select their data sets to show what it is they wanted to show that that is something that does need to be moved beyond and and it takes a discipline and and there are ways of doing it and there are ways of defining potentially what the truths of something might be, which again is explored in one of the chapters. Uh, but it needs an awful lot of patience and being willing to actually hear something that might make you feel uncomfortable. But again, it, it, that doesn't mean you have to then agree with the opposition, and you probably won't, but it, it, it brings you into a place of just accepting that there's other data. Look, I mean, there's people out there with incredible beliefs and views I don't agree with, but if they can make a reasonable case for it and can present at least some evidence and not be shouting at me that I must believe it, then I will hear them out. I will listen. And I, I might just say, I'm going to put that in what I call the grey box. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I'll put it there and I'll consider that that viewpoint exists. Um, and whether it be about flat earth or, you know, whether Hillary Clinton had Princess Diana murdered. Yeah, whatever it is. I can't say whether those things are true or not, but if somebody believes them, if they make a reasonable case and can show some evidence, because there's a lot of stuff out there where there's just not rooted in anything. But if there's some reasonable evidence, we should all be willing to look at it. And if you do that, you've at least made the other person feel that they were heard, as opposed to the situation we're currently in where nobody feels heard and we're all just shouting over the void at each other. So, you know, there are ways of doing this. Do you, throughout your research, have you seen any time in human history where we have heard each other out for the most part? Because I, I feel like doing a book like this, you kind of have to try and find a period in time where maybe humans were, you know, interacting with each other in that type of way. Is there any evidence to suggest that? Uh, not enough evidence, I have to tell you. I think it, we're still on the journey of consciousness evolution and we've got a way to go. However, yes, there are some groups of people that have tried it. Now, I don't have any religious outlook as such. I have no religious agenda, but I had some contact with Quakers years ago. And I was always really impressed with the way Quakers uh, held their administration meetings because they would make sure that everybody's voice got heard. Now, it was quite a long and torturous process sitting through one of their meetings and because everybody would get to say what they had to say. And if there were disagreements, you couldn't just leave it like that. You had to get to a point where you what you call, you know, you minuted the meeting, you described what happened. Even if it doesn't come to a conclusion, you describe exactly what happened and what the different viewpoints were that were disagreed upon and at least at the end of it you came out with a document that recorded what the differences were and sometimes agreement could be found and it could take weeks you know you could keep coming back to this over and over but i actually think that's not a bad model and it has been tried and they've actually done very well in managing to you know get over big disagreements whether it be about theology or whether or not nuclear weapons should be banned because they've been big on the kind of peace campaigning um so, I mean, that is one model, and I'm sure you, you would find others as well out there. And there's also the more Buddhist approaches, not so much the Buddhist warrior monks, but, you know, there are others who they try not to react emotionally to something. You know, they try to look at it more logically. Logic's not quite the right word there, but you understand what I mean. Uh, and again, I suppose it's a bit Jedi, really, isn't it? And one thing Star Wars got right, I think, was the the having the need to react to something or the ability to take action but doing it without the hatred that takes you to the dark side you do it because it's right to do it and i think we could all foster that a little bit more that you know if you're going to do something fine and know why you're doing it and don't get sucked into the vortex of that kind of dark feeling when it's something that's you know quite a passionate thing uh you know, you, we don't want to get so in the head that we lose our connection to the heart. I'm not advocating that, but there's a balance. There's a balance to be struck. And yeah, I, I think if we all got a little bit more Jedi and a little bit more Quaker, we'd probably do reasonably. Do you think the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, uh, would represent this type of environment? Or, or is that what it was meant for? You'd like to think so, wouldn't you? I mean, if you look at the original wording of your constitution, I mean, yeah, was it, if it was lived to the letter, uh, and interestingly, there were quite a few Quakers around at the time that that got put together. 
it's not a bad way to run a country. The problem we have is that, like, and I'm not just putting that on you, like every country in the world, nothing's ever run in the way that it should be because people try to use a system to get one over on others uh, and use it and manipulate it to suit themselves. And that's where it all starts to fall apart. But it, yeah, no, I, I think if we actually sat down and really decided to follow the things that were set down long ago, uh, and sort of stripped away all the fudge and silliness that we built on top of it, we probably could get back to a better way of doing things. But uh, yeah, no, all too often those things get torn up as time goes by through uh, abuse and through politicians that you can't trust. And we all know we can't trust many of them. Not all. I think there are some good politicians. But, you know, there's enough out there that just routinely lie. And, yeah, suddenly they expect us to trust them in a crisis. And funnily enough, we don't. And then they seem quite upset by that. But they've got to change the way they behave. And we're talking about turning, turning an oil tank around here. This is not going to be a five-minute fix. This is going to be a societal shift that's going to take decades, if not centuries, to do. But it has to at least be the decision to do it. And I think that's where we're getting to now. We're either going to all kill each other. Or we actually say, all right, hold, hold, let's, let's find another way. And wouldn't it be nice to think that we could? Um, and I'm not overtly an idealist. I'm very real in the book. I mean, in The New Heretics, I am as real about the faults that I have and the truth world has as I am about the faults that the mainstream has and authorities had. If we're all just real about it and we all just own up to the reality of something, we can deal with that. One side pretending they've got all the answers and they're perfect is never going to be a solution. So you don't think that we're too far gone? Like, you, you think that there is a room to improve or room to change the course of history because once you give someone power, they're not just going to give it up, you know, just here you go. Hey, you sure. can have it back. Um, so what does that look like? If, if, if what you suggest in your book does start to work and it does start to take a, an effect on people where they start listening to other ideas, what happens to the authority? They're not just going to give it up lightly. No, of course. I mean, one of the things is a chapter called Them and Us. And it looks about the relationship we have to our leaders. And that includes, you know, politicians of all kinds. And how we often place them over there as if they're kind of not related to us. And yet, actually, if you look at where it all meshes in the middle, they are an expression of us. You know, and what we tend to hate in our politicians, you'd often find if you stop and think about it, that we do it or have done it. And it's kind of like, it's all right, if we do it because we think, well, we're not in power, but they shouldn't do it. Everyone's going to sooner or later going to have to take responsibility for the way they behave. Because, and I've long said this, even before this book, the only way you're going to get a better society run better from the top is to change the way the grassroots work. And everybody should be willing to step up and do something, even if it's just joining your local council or committee or whatever, and trying to do it in a non-corrupt way. Because there's a lot of corruption in councils and committees, as we all know. But if everybody actually had that integrity, then I'm not going to do that. And we know some have tried in history and some have suffered from trying, but everybody actually came with that, with really wanting to do that. In the end, the very structures that in the end produced these people at the top would either crumble beneath them and the methods they've used to get where they are would stop working, or it would start to produce people who actually are a bit different. Because we all know the system that selects the people that rule things at the moment it doesn't work. It, it allows people with you know too much ego and too much power seeking and usually people with the money to get to the top. And they're not necessarily the people that should be running the show. I mean, at the moment over here, I'm not going to get political about Britain, but most people look at the people who are currently on the government cabinet and just shake their heads that they were ever allowed anywhere near power. Uh, and that's a sad state of affairs. But nonetheless, we've got to own up that they are there because we've allowed that. We need to look at the integrity and the honesty that we live with in our everyday lives. Because the minute you start to erode it and think, oh, well, it's all right, I can be a little bit corrupt because I'm not running the country. Well, that, that enables those at the top to keep doing that. But like I said, we're talking long, long changes here, but it has to start. And people stepping up and actually being willing to take a part in decision-making is the key. 
we're all very happy to have a go at the people making the bad decisions as we see it. But then if somebody says, would you stand for this local council? I was, oh, no, no, I wouldn't have time. And that's the trouble, which then allows in the ones that are looking for, yeah, this could be an ego trip. That has to change. And in the end, I mean, maybe we're going to be looking at some kind of jury service government or something where everybody has to give something of their time to keep the show on the road. I mean, there are a few countries have a little bit of that. Um, and I know that this sounds like, oh, here we go. Quick fix idealism. It's not a quick fix. We're talking having to set this up and running. But it is interesting. If you look back at the mid 1800s, there was a movement in uh, Britain called the Chartist Movement. And it was an attempt to get reforms of government and social conditions. And they all thought they'd get all their sort of things through and everybody seemed to support it and they couldn't believe that it wouldn't work. Well, it didn't work in their immediate lifetime. But interestingly, when you look back many decades later, you realise that nearly everything they wanted at the time did actually come to pass. Not everything, but most of it. And movements take a long time, but you have to start somewhere. Somebody has to be willing to stand up and say, right, I'm going to set the ball rolling. And they may never see the result in their lifetime. And I think that's what we're looking at here. But everybody has to do their little tiny thing. And towards the end of the book, I actually make a list because I'm very aware it's so easy to write this stuff and not actually come up with practical suggestions. And I come up with a list of suggestions that what everybody can do to do their little bit to change it whether it be about standing for a local council or even just attending a protest or writing a book or running a podcast and you guys are obviously doing a great job because it's so easy isn't it to just troll other people and have a go at somebody for not doing things the way you think they should do and not offer anything yourself and my response when people say to me well I disagree with what you're saying is fine I really look forward to you putting forward your ideas so, so many of them don't. Uh, they just want to shout at other people. But, that, that you know, then they have no right to a, a view, in my opinion, if they're not going to do something themselves to try to balance it out. And that's what we talk a lot about in the podcast. But um, I, I agree that movements do take time and it, they are necessary in, in order to make a better society or a better world. But, I mean, a big thing that Jesse always brings up is that, you know, do you agree with the fact that human beings are inherently evil or unperfect and that – no matter what we do throughout the, you know, the, the human history, it's always going to end up in this type of situation with people with power who are corrupt. That's just in our DNA. That's just, that's just what I don't we think, are. I don't think you or usually how do you, say how do inherently you, evil, Jesse. Do, I feel like you say inherently no, like no, selfish. I, no, I say, I say corruption always happens within uh, hierarchies. So if a system gets corrupt enough to where the people flip the script and then take over control again, and then they redo society and government, and then restructure it, eventually just because of human nature, things will be corrupt again. And that's almost this never-ending cycle that humans have to go through because we're not perfect beings. And eventually, over a long enough period of time, it will become corrupt again. It's almost like this, the, like the human flaw overall that, that will happen regardless. Uh, I hear like that. I don't I know, mean, an answer, I, you know I if you have a great answer to you. that. You know. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I understand that point of view. And I think hitherto, yeah, it has been rather like that. And that's why we're talking a long time to work this through, right? And maybe we're talking centuries. But if we don't start and we don't have the intention to do that, it, it's never going to happen. I don't actually accept personally that humankind is inherently evil, this kind of original sin thing. I don't go down that road. Uh, I, clearly, people are capable of doing great evil. Uh, but I, I think on the whole, we also do great good. And you look at what people are capable of uh, and you realize, hang on a minute, that if, if we could only tap that and somehow spread that. But, yeah, it's just easier to be corrupt. And yes, because historically things have been like that for so long, it's just easy to keep it going. But if, if enough people say, no, hang on, I'm not going to, that could change. And I mean, the one thing I will say for the, the younger generation, I hate to use that term, but generations younger than my own, they seem here anyway, and I don't know if this is universal, for all the problems that they've accumulated with social media and new technology and all the other things, they seem somehow more moral 
Now, we might not like the council culture aspect of it, and that's something taken to too much of an extreme. But on the whole, it, it strikes me that they actually don't like corruption. They, they just look at the people running the things and inherently think, I was told not to be like that. I don't like seeing these people doing it. That's why many of them won't vote. Or and I'm talking Britain here. I can't speak for you there. And they don't come forward because they don't believe in what they're seeing. But maybe out of that will one day come something where they offer something new, and that, that we tap into the better side of what they're trying to do. And some of you might be aware of uh, the uh, work of Stephen Pinker. Now I don't agree with Stephen Pinker in many views. He's too close to the alternative. He seems to hate conspiracy theorists. Right. I don't like what he says about that. However, he has pointed out that actually, if you look at the history of humankind, just in the last century especially, things are actually improving. There are less wars, there's less murder, and other people have tried to counter that with different reasons as to why. But he says, actually, we are slowly going in the right direction. And he lists the kind of different things in history that show you that actually, yeah, we used to react like this and do that to somebody, but now we don't. So go forward a few more centuries and maybe, you know, things we just take for granted today, like corruption, would that'll be seen as unbelievable that anybody ever allowed that in the future. And obviously automation and AI is going to change a lot of things and that is going to be massively open to abuse in its own right. However, it also potentially offers massive opportunities if we grasp them now before we get to the stage where that's suddenly running the show you know now is the time for everybody to step up and say let's apply some consciousness to the way this is going so there is some evidence that actually things will not always be like this but of course it could be and if, if that turns out that it's the case and everything just keeps collapsing inwards ultimately we probably will destroy ourselves and we have to hope that we don't and, and I'm going to remain a little bit optimistic because otherwise, why bother? Uh, and I don't like to go down that road. So you have to give it a Start go. to get that, ni and, that nihilism in no, you. No, I, I love that optimism because it's so hard, especially after doing this podcast for a couple of years, to where at some point after having so many guests on and hearing so much, it's the world starts to like close in on itself. And there is this nihilism. I've become very pessimistic and nihilistic. There, there, like, there's been nights after a podcast to where it's just depressing. Where it's almost sure. like, man, you almost know too much now. And you just don't want to, you almost like ignorance is bliss kind of thing. Like, man, I don't even want to know this information anymore. I just want to go and live my life. I'm, I'm so happy to see that you're, uh, you know, optimistic on the world and we can still move in a better place. Because it's difficult with the world that we live in and a bunch of knowledge that I'm sure that you have too. It and, is. You know, and I'm glad I that mean, you're not... You know, that you're Sorry, not one I of those. Mean, no, no, you're good. That you're just not one of those people that, oh, man, there is no, which obviously you're doing something to try to correct some of these wrongs. But it's easy for people to just sit back and be like, man, there's no point. You know, the world's sure. terrible. And then just sit back and do nothing, yeah, too. Yeah. And it's hard to get out of that mentality. And actually, I mean, one of the change. points that I make, especially towards the end of the book, is look. We have all got to fight for what we fight for, right? And we've got to expose the shadows and all the terrible things going on. And absolutely, there are terrible things going on and conspiracies and corruption and agendas. Absolutely. However, you have to not fall prey to it so that that eats you up. Because, I mean, I have contacts of people that I've known that have got so sucked into the shadow that they can't climb out it's like they're in the hole everything's terrible everything's depressing they wind up being depressed and to me I look at them and I think what a shame because actually it means that the big they out there somewhere have won because all that spirit all that light all that fire those people had is just getting squashed out of them and I've always tried over the years to do what I can do right whether write a book or give another lecture. I do what I can do, but actually just stand back a little bit from it and just have moments where I can put that aside, you know, put the kettle on, have a cup of tea or coffee or whatever, and just say, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to break from that for a minute. Because the ones that don't, you can get so boiled up, it can eat you away inside. And to me, that is a victory for the darker forces. And I'm not going to give them that satisfaction. So, that's an interesting point, because I think you hear a lot of people at the moment saying we're in a war, we're in a war for truth. And to be fair, I think the war has been declared on the truth seekers rather than the other way around. But nonetheless, I understand, yeah, there is now a kind of a feeling that we are in a conflict, which is getting very nasty. But the danger is if you 
keep walking around saying we're in a war we're in a war you take on that soldier mentality where you start to dehumanize things and you dehumanize people and that's when you get into that thing again of branding everyone that doesn't say quite the right thing the enemy because you're full of fear and you only see the worst in them instead of saying okay maybe there's a nuanced person here that i don't agree with fully but okay maybe there's something i could learn from this um and that's the danger because we all know from wars right and terrible things like the my Lai massacre or whatever people are capable of doing terrible things once they are dehumanized and the truth world needs to be so careful not to dehumanize itself and i see that happening they get very hard nose very hard line and the ends justify the means and all this but that's the kind of energy that we're also fighting and if we become the same as those people trying uh, to rule the world in their way i don't think that's any kind of solution so i do advocate yes do what you can do everybody and, and i do say that again if you're just sitting there trolling people and arguing about stuff online that, that's you're not doing anything that's not enough you can't just be an online robin hood you, you've got to go out there and do more but if you can do more and you think okay i've done a bit of that today now i'm going to just break and actually be with the kids or go and do something nice and take a walk and look at nature and then i'll come back to this later that is a better way forward because i'm seeing many people falling into this pit at the moment of despair that they can't get out of and maybe it's just willful but i refuse to give anybody that sense of satisfaction and the people often say you must have had this people say oh don't you worry about you know somebody fiddling with your brakes or don't you think you're going to get killed next week and you know what I, I, there's no way i'm going to think like that if they come and get me they come and get me I'm, I'm not going to spend my life worrying because then I fall into the paranoia that they probably want me to fall into. And that's that's true for a lot of people in this world. The truth world, the ones that get on the best, are the ones that say, you know what, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do and forget the consequences. If it's coming from a right place, moral place, that will shine through and you're doing the mission that you came to do. But you've got to remember to live a little bit as well and just know when it's time to relax and let go and just give something a break otherwise we all go crazy <clears throat> you're not wrong on that man. absolutely and we and again a lot of the stuff that i mean we've talked a lot about that on the podcast just like you know starting small and getting involved into local politics and i think that that would help a lot with people who and what's the saying that the the people who are in politics shouldn't be but the people who should be it's, don't want to be a politician it's you know what i'm saying the best the best leaders are the people who don't want to lead. Right. And that goes back to something similar to what um, Andy was saying earlier, which is the fact that you, you got to get involved in local stuff, but it's so hard to do for so many people because they don't want to out of either apathy or not wanting to be in the spotlight or whatever. And the people who are leaders or are in politics and make it up there have that, that psychopathy, that, that corruption aspect, that, we all have once, man, when I do stuff, it's to get money or to get laid or to do this or that or whatever. So when these people are trying to be leaders, there's that inherent like selfishness there that they can't control. It may be in your subconscious, but when you're trying to be a leader, it's usually out of some kind of selfish flaw. Not always, but usually I, I would say in my own opinion, out of some kind of selfish flaw as to where the people with good ideas who probably would be good leaders aren't going for that because their their wants are in other avenues right you know I, man i worded that weird but that's so I, I i mean i think i mean i speak to a lot of groups um mainstream and alternative groups and i mean a lot i'm giving several talks a week these days um and i what i notice because you hear them talking about you know their admin their infrastructure and they need people to help run the groups is that less and less people are willing to come forward to take on responsibility so everybody's afraid of taking on responsibility so you're always left with a very small group of people running these groups and it's always the same kind of personalities and I, that's what we're seeing in politics i totally understand why anybody wouldn't want to get in involved when we do know there are some not very nice people but if the good people don't in some way give towards that um there's going to be a problem and uh you know writers like uh oh scott peck the psychologist said that you know compelling people forcing them to play a social role is i think to two down the authoritarian route but however encouraging everybody to step up and just do one thing whatever it might be 
right? Do one thing towards the wider collective, even at the lower level, that's when that will begin to change, even if it's a centuries long process. But all the time people evade responsibility. And I see a lot of that at the moment. It's like, oh, I wouldn't want the buck to stop with me. Well, then, yeah, you're always going to be at the mercy of those that think, great, way, well, hey, I can take advantage of the system and off they go, because those are the kinds of personalities they are. So, yeah, we've got a long way to go. However, we need to start, uh, and I'm not going to personally uh, be told that I must be pessimistic, you know, as and some people do, they say, oh, no, you, how can you, how can you have an optimistic view? Well, I'm going to, because if you don't, then you've given up from the start, and if I fight the war, but be careful, don't get dehumanized. That's what I would say to anybody that's going down that road. Do what you can, but also remember you're a human being and the ones that have messed up the world for us generally are not very nice people and we don't want to wind up like them. And you've got to keep your heart and you've got to keep that humanity there in the core of yourself. 100%, man. Well, we're getting close to the end of the hour here. Um, I think we could probably got like five to 10 more minutes. I just kind of want to pick your brain. I know we've kind of just stayed on this one subject. So, I mean, I, usually we end the, the podcast with each of us asking you a question. So I, I, I you guys want to do that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so what I'm kind of curious, and, and again, thank you for the book you wrote. I, you know, it's, uh, that, that's, and in my opinion, that's kind of what we needed to lean towards. I know there's no such thing as a utopia. And we had a podcast two weeks ago where we kind of got into that towards the end of the podcast when Carl was here. Um, and I'm not suggesting that that's what you're saying is you want a utopia, but just a better world in general. And I am completely on board with that hundred um, percent. But my question to you would be on podcast related to what we were talking about is what are your thoughts on Tartaria and in a mud flood? Have you heard any of those con- conspiracies? I, I've got to be honest. I, I don't feel that I am informed enough to really give you a clear view on that. Again, it's something which is out there. Uh, I, I don't think that I, I really can give an opinion on it. it it's Fair something enough. that, you know, I, I'm very interested to hear more about. But at the moment, and this is it would be so easy to just kind of come up with an opinion. I, I don't feel at the moment that I can really judge that. Um, but I just want to pick up what you said about utopia. No, no, the utopia doesn't exist. It never did exist and it won't exist. But it, it's just getting that little bit closer to it, you know. Um, that's all and just that's, taking a few steps towards something better. Yeah. To kind of like, um, come off that question a little bit too. Um, because I hate the fact that there are still people in America that just chant that USA is number one, which I think is a bad mentality to have, even if it was somehow the best country in the world, which it's not that if it was number one, you don't want to have that mentality because then there's no room for progression at all. And then still making things better because there's, you always need to progress and be moving forward. Uh, but there's still Americans that that say that, and I cannot stand it. Um, but as far as countries go, is there any political system or country that you think is doing it like the best right now and that other countries need to move in that oh, direction? That's a, that's a solid question. I mean, there are some people that look at Switzerland as more of a model for a possible way forward. Uh, They have a lot more sort of, uh, they have a voting system that is a lot more, what's the word I'm looking for here? It's less politically biased. It's it's a bit like the Quakers again. I think it's quite a long-winded way of getting things done, but there's a lot of middle ground allowed. uh, And their voting system, you know, it's effectively... It's a way that it is proportional representation, which means that it doesn't allow certain people just to get too quickly to the top. So the Swiss model is one that some people look at. Others don't like it because you can wind it under a slightly Kafkaesque sort of administration system that's a bit unforgiving sometimes. So, you know, there is no perfect system out there. But I mean, that you know, that is one model. Um, I, I just... I thought you made a really interesting point there. People saying America is the greatest. Well, look, we're in we're Britain so far for, from centu- it. for centuries. We're, we're the empire. You know, we run mm. the world and all this nonsense. Um, look, every country has its strengths. Every country has its weaknesses. 
And there, there is no one country I think is better or greater than another, but there's nothing wrong with celebrating what your strength is. And that's one of the things I like about America and the time that I spent there, that they, there is at least a, a belief that there is something good there. And it shouldn't just be a general thing not rooted in anything, but there's nothing wrong with identifying what is good about it and, and celebrating that and promoting that. And if anything, what's happened here in Britain, we've gone the other way um, since the empire crumbled and it's uh, everyone, we're all sort of, encouraged to feel ashamed of ourselves really and what we did in colonialism and all this and which fair enough there were many bad things to that but we need to get back to that okay but what what are we good for now we've broken away from the european union so here we are we're on our own well what are we going to do and i don't think there's been enough discussion of of that of who we feel we are today and then all the political arguments about the brexit thing nobody really got down to what does it mean now to be british and, and I think that's something we need to resolve. But every country needs to decide, I think, what it's good at. And, and it's OK to feel good about that. But it also needs to be honest and see what it's not very good at as well. And everybody needs to be honest about themselves, individuals as well as countries. Absolutely. All right. Well, my question was originally going to be about like population size of countries and the stuff I've brought up before about how smaller populations are easier to manage and govern and stuff instead of large populations. But I'm going to move on from that because every time we've had someone from the UK or from England or from, you know, from overseas, from abroad, from us, we've always brought it up, but then never actually talked about it. So my question is from someone who lives there, what exactly has Brexit changed? How has it affected your life? Because I don't think any of us actually know. I could, I'm, I'm just speaking for myself. <laughs> yeah. Like, we don't we don't follow it, and that's something we're bad at here in the United States, not want to speak for everybody, but of not kind of following that stuff. So I'm just interested to not read a news article on it, but to hear it out of the words from someone who's actually there. What has that done? Yeah, I mean, make no mistake, historically, Brexit's a massive thing in Britain's history. I mean, there's no question about it. Um, on a day-to-day -day level, we're still trying to come to terms with whether it was a good thing or a bad thing. But of course, it happened almost immediately that the COVID uh, waves, call them what you will, began. And of course, so because that created their own problems, it's hard to know some of the problems we've had with trade and getting stuff to and fro over to the EU, whether that's more to do with Brexit or whether it was just to do with COVID and shortages of drivers. And there's been a lot of fuss over Ireland because, of course, Ireland, the main part of Ireland is, is part of the EU, but it's got a land border with uh, Britain with Northern Ireland, that's been a real difficult thing, uh, trying to work out how that's going to work. And the Irish felt, I think, that they were kind of sold down the river on that, or certainly Northern Ireland did. It's beginning to cure. In a nutshell, what Brexit enables us to do is make our own trade deals. We're not tied to things like there were various agricultural policies that really weren't that good, that they were applying to lots of countries over a big land mass. Whereas everybody, you know, you have individual needs in different parts of, of the world. And I think that was awkward for some. Um, that, that's not to say that the agricultural policy we're bringing in now is necessarily great in its own right. As usual, it's another fudge uh, because we never seem to do things properly. We always just do it just enough to keep it working. And that seems to be the British way. Um, but in essence, we're now free to make trade deals with other countries if we want we don't necessarily have to follow the same rules that they do in the EU. Some we do because we've had an agreement with them and, you know, they'll do trade with us if we agree to do certain things the way we used to do it. It's probably, I mean, in my view, I think it's probably inevitable that that was going to happen. Even if you think breaking with the European Union was a really dumb thing to do, I think somewhere in the average British heart, there was a feeling of they don't like being run by somebody else. And I'm sure you would feel the same over there. And it did feel like that there was always somebody over in Brussels doing the puppet master stuff. Well, as we know, there's always puppet masters somewhere. But it, it was it felt deeply uncomfortable. And the newer generations who came through, who grew up in the EU, of course, that was all they knew. And so they wanted to stick with it. And they had the idealism that they'd been sold through movements like Common Purpose, which you might have discussed perhaps in previous times. Um, 
So they were reluctant, but I think the people that remembered having a modicum of at least some kind of freedom before, before you know, we got involved with the EU felt a sigh of relief that at the very least, even if we were going to make a complete mess of it, it was our mess and not their mess imposed on us. <laughs> and I think that's the best way of looking at it. Are things better? Who the hell knows? But it's our mess and we can make it as messy as we want. That's a and good way to look at it. Telling us. So I think that's the core of it. And we'll see where it goes. It's still early days yet. And it's unfortunate that the, like you mentioned at the beginning of that, it's unfortunate that the worldwide pandemic that we're going through right now has kind of, you almost don't know because it has pushed everything else under the rug. Like it has become the world's top number one priority and focal point. So everything else has just kind of went to the wayside. Like everything's on pause until we get this pandemic thing resolved. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's why a lot of people are deeply suspicious that it's being, it seems, ramped up. I mean, here just today, they're talking about yet more restrictions, not as bad as it has been in some parts of Europe, where they're talking about mandatory vaccination and all these terrible things that, you know, many people have feared for a long time. Um, However, yeah, it's a lot of people feel that it's been used to justify a lot of stuff that wouldn't have come in otherwise. And then you've got the whole Great Reset thing, Agenda 2030. I'm sure you've discussed all that before. Uh, Many people feel it's all enmeshed with with the the supposed necessities to protect us all from COVID. so I'm kind of in the middle on it. I mean, I do think COVID does exist for what it's worth. But yeah, I definitely think we're not being given the big picture. I think a lot of information is being withheld from the public, which doesn't respect them and it doesn't enable them to make a, a judgment. And it's all done just constantly to make us queue up and get our vaccines and do what we're told, which some people think is a marvellous thing. And we need to accept that. Some people think it's absolutely necessary, but others worry that if you do that too often if you manipulate people by especially that withholding certain information all you're doing is guaranteeing conspiracy theories it's almost like if you want if you wanted to generate conspiracy theories do what we're doing (laughs) this is the best way to do it best way to do it and that's where you come back to that "Mm, is this divide and rule or are they really that stupid but yeah so but it certainly that's blurred the whole brexit thing so we've got a way to go to know whether or not it was a good thing we'll see well um appreciate your time andy it's been a pleasure having you on where can we find your book uh your website any any other things that you'd like us to find and it'll be in the description below but for sure yeah i mean look the new heretics I, I like to believe it will help a lot of people because many people are confused in the truth world and outside of it about why are these arguments even there? Where's this going? And why can't I, why can't I share that view? I do, I do believe this book will help uh, and it will give a lot of insights that, that goes far beyond the polarization. You find it on Amazon very easily uh, in the US and the UK, um, basically anywhere that sells books, you're going to find it. Uh, If you want to find out more about me, uh, go to my website, which is truthagenda.org. So that's truthagenda.org and you'll find there's lots of stuff about the book videos of me giving various talks. Uh, I'm on Instagram. I am on evil Facebook because so one must be these days. Um, so, yeah, you'll find me there as well. Uh, but, yeah, The New Heretics, look it up. You'll find it easily. It will come your way sooner or later, I hope. <laughs> and I just want to – people can buy it from other bookstores besides Amazon, correct? Yes, as, okay. as they say, other okay. retailers are available. Gotcha. Yeah, Make sure. Sorry, yeah, I'm, I'm real absolutely. anti, like – no, you're absolutely right. Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, you should be able to buy it from anywhere that sells books. Fantastic. In theory. Awesome. Well, I wish the best for you, man, and I hope your book sells uh, like wildfire and then just people just open their minds and, and listen to what it is each other has to say without arguing and, and trying to slice each other's necks open, man. It would be a beautiful thing. Sure. Well, look, thank you. And look, guys, you're doing great work, and thank you. I appreciate you having me here today. Fantastic. I appreciate you, you coming man. on. Have a good holiday, sir. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, there you have it. There's Andy Thomas joining Talk Junkies. It was a fantastic podcast. Um, it'll be in the descriptions below where you can find them. So just uh, check those out for all our junkies out there. Stay flying and ring the bell.